Hey, Greg. Hey, Andrew. It's September 13th, 2017. What are you into? Well, I'll tell you, uh, and I'm a little upset because I'm not doing it right now. I'm here talking to you. Sorry. Uh, and that is Destiny 2. I threatened on the last <laughs> on the last episode that I was going to buy Destiny, and I did. And it's um, it's good. It is really good. They rounded off, uh, they sanded off a lot of the the rough edges and the bullshit that was in Destiny One. It still has some problems, and um, but what I think I can say is that almost all of those problems are small. And they are not problems that are left over from Destiny 1. Not like some stupid shit that they did that everybody knew was a problem. They didn't fix it this time around. Um, it's, it is a hell of a lot of fun to play. I'm, I'm nearly done the campaign. Um, and then you start to get into the end game content, which I can't really speak to because I haven't got there yet. But, um, it is just, I mean, it is just a blast to play. I think that is one of the things that Bungie does very, very well is it's a, it's just a game that is fun in your hands. Like you just, it's the shooting, shooting aliens just never felt so good. It just, it's great. Um, so yeah, that's what I've been doing. I've been, I've been playing Destiny whenever I've had, uh, time to play Destiny. And, um, I had to stop playing Destiny to come talk to you. Sorry. <laughs> no, we'll just end early. Uh, good episode, right. everybody. Uh, cool. Good night. Uh, we'll see you next week. <laughs> uh, so, uh, I've had something on the mind. Yeah. The old noggin. Uh-huh. Adaptations. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. So, tonight's topic, we're going to talk about rules for making a good adaptation. And and why is this why is this top of mind for you? Well, you know, I've been realizing that a lot of the media I've been consuming lately has been, you know, especially film media, has been adaptations of, of books or comics. Uh, as I finished The Handmaid's Tale and watching Preacher and looking at movies coming out this fall and, you know, talking about media stuff in general, it's like, oh, nearly everything I'm consuming is an adaptation. <laughs> um, you know, some of our most revered classic movies are adaptations. Some of the things I didn't even realize before doing research for this podcast uh, you can make a laundry list of movies that are, you know, considered some of the greats, and probably 70% of them are adaptations of books. Uh, but there's probably more adaptations now than there ever has been before, you know, like constantly coming out in TV and film. And especially for genre fiction, it only seems to be going up. Every mm -hmm. studio is grabbing the rights to every comic universe, to every fantasy book series, to every 80s cartoon, every I mean, goddamn Happy Meal toys, whatever. Like, they're just gobbling everything up because they don't want to be the studio that misses out on the next Game of Thrones or the next Marvel, right? Yeah, and, you know, there's there's a safety in adaptations, um, you know, just to use the easy example of a book that becomes a movie, although that's not as common as it used to be because we don't really make, like, dramas and comedies anymore um but it's because well look this book already sold a million copies so that means this story must be good people must like it so we've already vetted out the content and we also know that we've got a certain you know default viewer base of people who like the book and want to see the movie um and i think that because hollywood right now is so risk averse and so bereft of original ideas that yeah you're right like anything that's remotely successful or was remotely successful 30 years ago snatch it up by the rights and you know start crapping out a script 
Yeah, and there's a certain amount of like, you know, economic efficiency to that, right? Like you've already got the story, so you don't have to have, I mean, you, you still need to have someone write a script, but it doesn't need to be taken out of thin air. So you're already saving on some creative, you know, economic effort, if you will. And, uh, you know, I used to wonder, and I feel like I've got a, I've got a hypothesis on to go with our rules. And I'll just say the hypothesis now is that I think that in general, movie studios are getting better at adaptations. Hmm. So I remember thinking back when I was like a teenager and I was, you know, into books and into comics and things were coming out and things were happening. And I was thinking, you know, I used to always ask myself, like, why did they do this so differently? Why did they completely ignore X, Y, Z? You already had it written for you, right? Like <laughs> what, like what you've already had it done correctly once. Uh, you know, I think I've gotten older. I've understood some of the differences, but um, I feel like there's still some big sore spots, like high profile sore spots. But I also feel like there's a lot more responsible creators out there who are lovingly crafting adaptations from things that they love themselves or have come to love through their being paid millions of dollars to <laughs> implement them. Uh, so, but I think that where we need to start, like always. A pedantic definition of terms? Uh, of course. Yay, pedantic definition of terms. And I, I don't actually have a full one for this, so we're going to need to get there. Uh, so what's an adaptation? What counts as an adaptation? So it's easier to say what doesn't count, right? Right. Um, so I would say that your typical superhero movie does not count as an adaptation. Okay. Because I think that taking already established characters and putting them into a new storyline, it's not that's not an adaptation in the same way that like Harry Potter movie number one is an adaptation of Harry Potter book number one, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, and I know that some superhero movies are loosely based on like an existing comic book arc, but it's very rare when it really follows it beat by beat by beat. It's more like, all right, here's a general idea. Tony Stark's armor is like slowly killing him, I guess. And Maybe there's a guy who can blow himself up like that. And, and then we just kind of tell our own story with that basic setup. But to me, that doesn't count as an adaptation. Okay. I struggle with the superhero movies universes a lot uh, because I, th- I think it's a gray area. I, I had pretty good, I was, you know, I was drawing my fences and lines. I was like this. I just kept coming to that one and coming back to it because I wasn't sure because, you know, I do agree to there's no there's not usually a single story behind the films and the, and the stories, but they're still, like I said, they are taking bits and pieces of things. And I still think there's something that's part of this whole Milu that's, that's, you know, about how you're handling characters and settings and yes, I stories. I think it's going to, we're going to, how, how things are handled, especially around characters. I think that's an important piece of this, but I think that there's a difference between an interpretation of a character and an adaptation of a work. Like, there can be a very interesting interpretation of a character. Robert Downey Jr.'s interpretation of Tony Stark is very interesting. Um, But that's not necessarily an adaptation of the character. Um, In the same way that, you know, every time a play gets a new cast, we're not calling a new... It's not a new adaptation of Hamlet, right? Mm -hmm. It's just kind of... It's Hamlet with a new tat, with a new cast, maybe a new interpretation because, ooh, look, they're all wearing modern clothes in this one, you know, and slightly, you know, reinterpreting the story 
But adaptation, I think, needs to be more than just bringing the characters you know into new or somewhat familiar circumstances. Okay. I'm going to agree with that tentatively, although I think we'll push, we'll get to some weird gray areas as we move forward with that. Uh, some things that I definitely don't want to include in adaptations are like remakes or reboots, unless it's of an existing work already, but then it's an adaptation of the work, not the original movie. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah. I, I, I think that, yeah, I think that there's, so I think what, what the, how to kind of encapsulate that is an adaptation has to be from one medium to another, right? Like right. you don't adapt one film into a different film. Um, I think that it may be possible. Um, no, but even then, I think that it's a, you know, we reinterpreted this samurai movie as a space opera. It's not really, we didn't adapt it. Um, yeah, I think that's key. It has to be medium to medium. Like it is a play that is adapted for the screen or it is a novel that is adapted for the stage, but not a slightly different version of the novel. <laughs> right. I changed the characters' names, and now it's an adaptation. Right. Uh, <laughs> it's my book about um, Gary Botter and the <laughs> Wizard's Rock. Yeah, I mean, so I guess that leads me to my, my tentative definition was pretty brief, but I was just taking any established story and recreating it in a different medium. How's that sound to you? So I think that's 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 important. And you said establish story, and I think that's key. Um, I think the story has to come with it, or it's not really an adaptation. If it's just the characters doing something different. But I would also say that the characters, by and large, have to come with it. Like, you couldn't say, say oh, we're going to adapt Game of Thrones. So it's the same story, but it's going to be an all-new cast of characters. And, you know, it, it's the same story, but now it's, you know, it's it's not Jon Snow anymore. It's, it's Jon Snow's a girl and old and you're just, you know, that's not it either. Right. Yeah. I would agree with that. I guess I'm having a hard time imagining what that would look like, what that would look like, but yeah, maybe we can right. think of an example as we go through some examples then. But, uh, but yeah, no, I, I do agree. I think the characters and we'll get there. I think characters are, are crucial to this, but like you said, there's something, it's not just the characters you're bringing over. Uh, yeah. So I do want to just one, you know, an endem is that also does not include, you know, what I would call expanded universes, right? Like I would not consider Star Wars books and comics outside of the ones that are direct adaptations of films to be adaptations, nor continuations of series like, you know, Buffy and Firefly are both being continued in comic books, but I wouldn't call them adaptations because it's new stories being told in that medium with existing characters, which might be a, to your point. All right, so what are the rules for, for making a good one? So for tonight, I just wanted to focus. I started to get, I started to think about this and then it got ballooned in my head and I'm like, we're going to be here for six hours. Uh, and I think there's some, I know there's some other areas that, of future topics for episodes I didn't want to tread on. So tonight, let's just focus on the most common and popular and the one that's probably most in our minds is film adaptations of written material, aka plays, books, Comics. Sure. Yes. Mostly books and comics, I think. So that sound good to you? Works for me. Okay. Because I, I do want to do another episode on video game adaptations. Oof. Yeah. And why they're so hard. <laughs> <But> <laughs> or I didn't want to get into that. Impossible. Tonight. They're impossible. impossible. Stop trying. Um, 
Who knows? Maybe we'll get a good one one of these days. We won't. We won't. Can't be done. Uh, and then we can get all, all kinds of crazy rabbit holes of, you know, other adaptations of adaptations of adaptations. But anyway, rules. Rule one, know, understand, and use your source material. This sounds simple. <laughs> sounds obvious. But I think if we've learned anything for big movie execs and directors and producers and writers that perhaps this isn't as obvious and easy as it appears. Yeah, uh, I, I think that I think that this is important because um, understanding what makes the story great is is really key to keeping the story great from one thing to the other. And I think, and we'll probably talk about this a little bit, that the later seasons of Game of Thrones, which probably still fall into adaptation, technically because they're still technically like adapting george r. r martin's outline of the end of the series but it's really clear that they don't understand what made his work so great and as a result the show is suffering for it um and so it's not just it's not just a slavish devotion to detail in cramming in all the easter eggs it says like i'm a nerd about this i know all about it it's do you understand it? Do you understand the what is the heart of the story? What are the key elements of the storytelling that make this thing so so exciting and compelling? Right. It's not enough to have just read it or even just I'm, I'm sure there's some cases just being familiar with it. Uh, I would not be surprised if some of the adaptations we've seen, the creative leads have never read the books or comics or whatever, or enough of them or enough, you know, with enough detail to really get into it. But also, you know, to, but to understand the point, you know, major story beats the history. And, and I also think like engaging with fans of the like longtime fans of the work, you know, and seeing what does it mean to you? What do you like about it? What do critics like about this? What has made this already popular work, which as we discussed earlier, is probably the reason you're adapting it. What has already made it popular? Uh, I guess there could be, you know, the idea. Maybe some. I think maybe some movie studios might say, like, "All right, well, like, yeah, but, but that's a reason that nerd like nerds like things. So we need to make it popular for the, your average American." And that's where I think sometimes you can lose some of these things. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think that there has been a realization that keeping the point intact or points probably <laughs> most stories don't have a single point. Um, <laughs> usually makes for a better movie that people will rise to the challenge and accept. And I think, you know, as we go through our examples, we'll see the bad and good examples of that. But you have to understand, yeah, why the story matters, why it's good. And, you know, that's why I also think it's important to have, if you can, it's not required, but to have, especially if they're dead, but to have the creator of the work, you know, involved in some way. I think that can certainly be helpful. Um, I don't know that it was helpful to the Dark Tower movie, <laughs> but, um, or maybe, you know, that was as good as he could do under the constraints. But I think as an example of not getting it, I mean, this, you know, would be the kind of the early universal monster movies, like the original Frankenstein movie. And, you know, that movie is a classic probably just because it was a movie with stuff in it when people wanted that. Um, but the actual work, Frankenstein, the monster is, you know, kind of a tragic hero. You're supposed to empathize with the monster. And 
Um, it's supposed to be a tragedy of, you know, man's hubris. But then the original movie, it was like, hey, what if what if it was just a scary monster that terrorized the town? And then, it you know, it took away the part of the story that was what made it popular to begin with. Um, and then you had to do a weird kind of Branagh version that kind of got it right. But and I guess my question along those lines is how we are how fitting things in adaptations is the way we were describing and defining our adaptation. Does that I almost wonder if those movies would even qualify because did they even really take the story? You know, I mean, they took the characters and kind of didn't really take the story almost, you know? So I think that the, I think that, I mean, that the original Frankenstein, the Boris Karloff Frankenstein movie, like it followed the, the story beats. Like it still has the out, same outline of the plot, but it doesn't really frame up the tragedy of the monster. It doesn't, it just kind of makes him the kind of the villain as opposed to the, you know, the hero isn't the right word, but you know, um, so I think that's a key where you, you keep all the story beats, but if you change the perspective, you change the tone, you change the message, now all of a sudden it becomes a very different thing. That makes sense. I thought of a good on-the-fly litmus test mm -hmm. for this. The litmus test, litmus test is, if this book was being taught in school, as Frankenstein often is, and I read in school, is the movie something that is used to help <laughs> with the teaching of that book? In this case, it was not. <laughs> no, no, no. Certainly not. Uh, yeah, no, that's a good, that's a good test. Because, because, you know, an English teacher, presumably, is trying to, you know, shove into uh, distracted, hormone-riddled teenage minds the points of these stories, right? The importance <laughs> of these stories. And... Presumably, they're going to do that uh, by focusing on them and not distracting them with Boris Karloff walking around and, you know, being scared of fire and stuff. Uh, there's a couple other questions that I want to think I think are important for this rule. Another thing is, you know, a question that people should ask themselves are, does the setting matter as part of this part of the source material? Does the setting matter? So I think for something like, you know, we talked about Shakespeare. Shakespeare is adapted in every which way. And up, down, back, forward, however you want, because the setting doesn't really matter. The characters matter and the plots matter, but the relative time and location, that's, you know, it doesn't really matter. Not saying all these are good movies, but, you know, you think of how many times has Romeo and Juliet been adapted to like a hip modern setting, right? A lot. Yes. Um, I think it can matter when, when you need the historical or the temporal context to for the story to make sense like a wild west movie like say unforgiven you can't bring that forward into a modern day world because that needs to be set in the lawless west it's about people shooting each other for money and um if you bring that forward now you need to bring it forward into kind of a alternate reality where violence is much more commonplace today um and does the physical location matter i mean the thing is not nearly as interesting if it takes place on a tropical island versus taking place, you know, at the South Pole. So I think that's part of it when the environment, it becomes an element of the plot. Um, or, you know, I, I hate this phrase, but like, New York is a character in the movie. Like, sometimes <laughs> that's important. And sometimes movies have a sense of place or books have a sense of place that is important 
and um, kind of key to understanding the kind of the cultural things that are going on in the book. So I think it really depends on what is the what is the impact of the of the environment and the time on the on the story being told. Yeah, Romeo and Juliet, you could say that's a timeless story, although one has to wonder um, why teenagers don't know how to check a pulse. Um, and you also, you do need to somehow adapt it to a world where like duels are a thing. Um, Fair. But for example, um, you know, Hamlet, or I should say Macbeth, does not work nearly as well in the modern day because it's all about you know, rights to the throne and, you know, wars of ascension and those sorts of things, which, you know, you could try to maybe like, oh, it takes place in a boardroom now, not the battlefield. And like, I guess, fine. <laughs> but it's a lot harder, right? Yeah, uh, I agree. I think that it can matter uh, a lot. You know, I think that there's, yeah, I, I like that you brought up the New York one because that was in the back of my head too. Just like those really like stupid heavy handed scenes and every spider movie we're like you mess with spider-man you mess with new york like it's just like oh god shut up please <laughs> that was my terrible new york imitation um so yeah i think that and i think that you know the physical location can matter too you know spider-man doesn't work so well in oklahoma fair yeah you know? <laughs> homecoming uh, did a good job of pointing that out yes yes exactly um so i think that's another thing that they need to consider when when thinking about this rule it's kind of a sub rule uh, and I thought of another good litmus test here is sort of on the back end is do the people who are unfamiliar with the original work come away out of that movie or that TV season, season or series with the same feeling, right? I mean, that's seems obvious, but like, that's how you do if you were doing your market research and you sat down with a focus group and be like, what were the main, what were the main points in the dark tower? You know, what was the point of the movie? Not what, not what was the details about who shot who and you know, who you got, who won at the end, but like, what was the point? And then you see if they align, right? I feel like that should be something that, you know, when they do these, uh, what do you call them, where they show movies to people before they come out? Focus testing? Focus testing. Yeah, I said it earlier. Uh, you know, that, that that should be a question that they're trying to align with, you know, their interpretation of the story and what they got out of it. I do have one follow-up question before we go on to the next rule, though. Mm -hmm. How do you handle things that don't really have a point? <laughs> you mean like the Dark Tower? Or like Transformers, for example, being a good example. Like, I don't know if you can call the movies an adaptation. Maybe a bit of a stretch because it's more just taking the characters and yeah. more on superhero route. But like, even still, there's not much of a point to like the 80s, you know, Hasbro informed Transformers. <laughs> no, no the, well, a lot of that stuff that gets mined today, like it's mined for its nostalgia value and its name recognition and the fact that it has a lot of established creative for it. Um, you know, it is theoretically easier to design Ninja Turtles that look modern, you know, to adapt the existing turtle design and just, you know, jazz it up versus start from the ground, from, from the ground up. Um, but yeah, I feel like if you're not, I think if it's an established story, and I think that's one of our key criteria is that it has to be a story. Stories have a point. Um, and we should say good stories have a point. <laughs> well, that's a good point. <laughs> but like, yeah, I mean, there, there, there should be something there to to carry over. And if not, well, then you've got shit source material to start with. Yeah, yeah, it makes me think of when people try and make like Dungeons and Dragons movie. It's just like, well, what is that even about? <laughs> there's no, I mean, there's source material, but there's no story to base it on, which is why they usually suck. Yeah. 
there's another one coming though, so we'll see what happens. So, rule two. Rule one, to reiterate, was no understand and use your source material. Rule two is don't be beholden to your source material. So it's sort of the the yin and the yang of adaptations, if you will. Yeah, I think that's that's very important because sometimes when what you do is, you know, if you're just just to be super duper faithful, there's a lot of things that work on the page that don't work on the screen or, you know, some things that aren't necessary to tell the story. Um, I think, you know, you, you, you have some examples here, um, that especially things that might not work as well for a modern audience. Like I hate when a movie gets called out for doing some like racist ass nonsense and the defense is, oh, well, that's the way it was in the book. That's, you know, they're just staying true to the original comic. And it's like, that, you don't have to do that, though. Nobody has a gun to your head. So you have to include this. Yeah, I mean, I said that this is, you know, there's kind of a couple layers to this. A, there's things, there's mechanical things, right? Like plot and, you know, cin cinematography that, like, you have to do things differently. You know, you can't have, you not you can't necessarily have an internal you know, comics are a good example where there's oftentimes a story is told through inner thought via, you know, yellow shaded blocks in a, on a page, right? That's where a majority of the storytelling is done. And you can't do that in a visual medium unless you're going to have like a straight up narration, which you can do, but most people don't um, for probably good reason. Uh, similarly with books, you know, a lot of if books are very, very tight third person or even first person a lot of the storytelling and stuff is happening inside the character or characters respective heads so how do you then you know illuminate that and put that on the screen sometimes things are vague and confusing for someone who's not familiar with the story and which i think is a, a well maybe that'll be another rule in but um you know they shouldn't they shouldn't have to be familiar with the story to get it so you need to be able to change some things mechanically but then more so part of the plot and the story itself, you should, you know, be willing to eliminate the bad shit, right? So yeah. including but not limited to plot holes, dated topics, and items that we would deem unsavory or offensive, or things that just don't work in a modern context. And that's, sometimes people got the pitchforks for them since something's written 50, 60, 100 years ago, and it's like, you should never defend bad stuff, but you have to take it within the context. We've discussed this before. You know, we look at Lovecraft or things like that, where, you know, not okay, but just different. So some examples I have are like, you know, I had not read it or watched the movie it, although apparently it's quite good. That's what I hear. Um, however, I really needed it. I really, really need it to get out of the media cycle because I keep having dreams of Pennywise in it. And it's really, really <laughs> bad. It's like, I didn't even watch this movie and I have to have nightmares about it. Like, come on, maybe I'll just watch it so I can. I don't know. It's really bad. Um, so please, can we just like move on? But I'll talk about it now. Uh, they cut the child orgy. Yeah. That Stephen King is oddly defensive of. Yes. Yes. So, <laughs> all right. So I, I haven't read all of it and I haven't seen the movie either, but it's, it's well known that, um, at the kind of conclusion of the first part of the story, the first half of the story that takes place when the characters are kids. And then the second half is their adults. Um, and that's what this, this first movie is essentially the first half. There's going to be another one to come back to the grownups. In the book, it ends with the one female character. And remember, these are all like teens and tweens, like, you know, like adolescents, not, not grownups. Um, they all have sex with her. It's her idea. It's all consensual, which I mean, in the way that children can consent to this sort of thing, but 
it's in there and it has some kind of emotional thing in the book and everyone agrees weird stephen king gets up to some weird stuff this was one where we all kind of agree like that might have whatever you were going for i don't think you nailed it steve you're forgiven but you know maybe don't do this again but yeah like because it's been you know it's been in the media like people are reminding everybody about like hey there's that weird part in the book what's that about um and he has been coming out and defending it a little bit and in some ways it's like when you read his defense you're like all right i kind of see what you were going for still dumb idea but like (laughs) you know like all right um but then he's like i guess people are just too stuck up these days like really stephen king really just be like you know what I thought it was a good idea at the time. Uh, I probably wouldn't write that scene again today. <laughs> like, don't defend it, man. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I sort of read some things about it, and it was sort of like, I, I read some interesting discussion about it, like how people are kind of being like, pushing back a little bit, saying, yeah, it's weird and it's dumb. Like, how did it get past, what, what editor's sitting there going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, okay. <laughs> All right, like, you know, how'd that not end up on the cutting room floor? But just got to talk about, like, you know, like you said, the ideas of sort of trying to engage with adolescent sexuality and how we sort of, because our culture, you know, we're trying to protect children. So we kind of, uh, you know, sterilize it a little bit. And yeah, but there's some interesting things there, I think, but not good. So the movie cut it. That's what you should do in yes. these situations, right? <laughs> yes. Um, to not go down too much rabbit hole. Uh, you know, and I'm, I'm going to bring up another one. And we're going to talk about this one, I think, probably in length a little bit, because it's a really good example of this type of thing. But um, in... Zack Snyder's Watchmen, the decision to cut out the sort of subplot about the biological experimentation and uh, the giant squid that shows up on Earth uh, as being sort of the instigator and the big crisis that, you know, unites mankind, whatever. In the movie, they change it to be, you know, basically framing Dr. Manhattan for an attack on the world. And, you know, I think I was will talk about that this isn't doesn't probably fall in the category of a great adaptation. But this particular point, I kind of liked this controversial. I kind of liked that because it felt a little tighter to me. Some people will disagree, but I felt like when I was reading Watchmen, I was like, what is this giant? Where this giant squid come from? You know, I don't know. It seemed weird, but like it just felt like, oh, that kind of makes sense in the in the context of putting Dr. Manhattan because he is sort of the crux of the plot in a lot of ways, uh, kind of putting him front and center there at the end. Yeah. And I think that I actually agree. I, I kind of like that plot point a little bit better um because it also it's one more you know twist on the who are who are the heroes and who are the villains and how do we divide those things in our mind question and that's that's kind that's one of the, the you know things that's kind of at the heart of watchmen is you know the line between hero and villain and then especially you know ozymandias is you know he's like i'm I'm murdering a bunch of people in order to unite humanity for a good thing. So am I a hero or am I a villain? And that's a good twist. But then also setting up at the end, I united them around a villain, this Dr. Manhattan, who's actually a hero. And just this kind of like, you've got heroes who are actually villains and villains who are actually heroes. And our conception of them can be manipulated by people who don't have goodwill. And I think that's a nice, yeah, it feels more complete. Um, I think the squid works a lot better in the comic on the page because especially the way that um, uh, Dave Gibbons puts it on the panel and you're used to these kind of evenly divided, you know, nine panel, uh, maybe it's yeah nine panel pages. And then all of a sudden it's just these 
just these just incredibly just still static lurid full page splash pages of this thing um works very very well on the page i don't think it would have worked as well on the screen um so yeah i think that was a good like um it tells the story a little bit better i will also again to go with stephen king i think that um and stephen king even agrees that the ending of frank darabont's the mist is better than Stephen King's original ending. He said, you know, I think Stephen King's quote was something along the lines of, you know, I have to, I have to applaud Frank for writing the ending that I didn't have the balls to write. Um, that ending is so much better in the movie than in the original short story. Um, so I think it can be done. It's weird that I'm giving Zack Snyder credit for Watchmen because <laughs> everything else about that movie I have problems with and everything else about his entire fucking career I have problems with. But um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that, you know, that the point of this is that if there's things that you need to change, change them. If they aren't, but you know, if they aren't crucial to the point of the story, which usually mine, like, you know, details of plot aren't always crucial. Um, you know, certain things like I know they're, you know, they're talking about Captain Marvel coming out. Miss Marvel's origin is weird, a little rapey, Ugh. but not in like a it's it's a I don't know. It's very confusing, but they're obviously going to like change that. <laughs> um, a because it's confusing and B because it's not so palatable nowadays. Uh, so step rule number two of this rule is that you need to feel uh, that if you need to or want to to extrapolate and expand. Right. So the example I have for this is The Handmaid's Tale. I have not read the book. I did just finish the series on Hulu. Um, Shay, however, had just read the book before she watched the series. So she was kind of filling me in like, oh, this this didn't happen or this did happen. So I kind of have a, a good grasp of what and I've read it maybe a couple of pages of it here and there and expert excerpts. It's a very you know, the book is a very singular focused story about one character in this kind of setting and more, you know, internal and kind of follows a very direct plot point because its, its goal is kind of singular. You know, you're going for this, trying to show this terrible misogynistic culture uh, where, you know, in an adaptation on screen, you know, it would have mounted to maybe three or four episodes mm -hmm. of a very tight character arc, which, you know, obviously they'd like to make a series out of it. They're making another series. And, you know, some people will cry foul and say, well, this didn't happen in the book or you're, you're taking it on. But like, what they've done is they've taken a concept, they've taken the point, the message, and they built a world around it and built other characters in it that are experiencing different facets of that world. And that's that extrapolation we talked about in other episodes. But I think it's really crucial here that like creators should have the freedom and, you know, the flexibility to do that if it if it mer if the story merits it. Agreed. So I'm sure we'll think of some more examples of that as we go through our examples. On to rule three. Uh this is really just for, you know, the, the comic slash book to visual medium. Um, but casting matters. Yeah. On a couple different levels, I think, as we just figured out with, you know, not figured out, but was reiterated with the whole Hellboy, uh, you know, casting fiasco for what was the character's name? Uh, Major Ben Daimyo. Yeah. Um, you know, who you're picking from a gender and racial and, you know, ethnic sense matters um although i don't think it matters the other direction as much unless it's really crucial like you can't tell a story about racism you know or, or like you're trying to adapt a story that takes place in you know civil rights era it wouldn't make sense to you know ethnicity swap the characters in it but when it comes to a character like johnny storm for example sure he could be african-american why not 
There's really no reason that he can't be. Yeah, and I think it's interesting when we think about the ethnicity of characters, and it's tough to imagine a black Batman because the idea that you know a black man in America would have the unlimited wealth of a Bruce Wayne, um, especially you know that was inherited from you know a family wealth because that we didn't uh, and we still don't really allow black families to accrue wealth in any kind of real way, um, but. Um, you know, when Marvel essentially made a black Batman with Black Panther, they had to invent an entirely new fictional uh, kingdom in order for them to make it like believable it was like, you know, you had to invent an alternate reality where you can have, you know, <laughs> essentially a black Batman. Yeah. Uh, but then I think, you know, to go another level is to talk more about just like the characters is that. In at least, in, especially in genre stories, most of them anyway, I think characters are you know the most important part. When you're talking about adapting stories, we talked about characters earlier, but I think that because characters are so crucial to genre fiction, people have an image and a connection of what they imagine these people to be. These you know these characters, these heroes, whatever they are, their personalities, you know what they strive for, and you know some actors can embody that and some can't. So I think that studios need to meet these expectations yeah and i think that that also goes to who the core of the character is just like it's important to understand the core of the story and make sure that that's carried over into the adaptation understanding the core of these established characters and carrying them over i think that as a bad example i think until logan hugh jackman as wolverine was a bad choice and it's not because hugh jackman is a bad actor it is because it is very difficult to look at Hugh Jackman and believe him as someone who is alienated from society and um, tormented by his own mistakes and constantly chasing after women who want nothing to do with him. Like, it's just hard to look at Hugh Jackman and feel that way up until, you know, up until Logan when he was like, oh, yeah, no, that guy looks like that guy looks like he's got miles and miles of failure behind him. Um, yeah. I guess, I guess I should also say casting, you know, in the context of also the writing, right? Because, like, you know, if I, I'm not going to fault an actor or actress if for portrayal of a character, if it's just because the writing was dumb. Sure. But uh, and it's not just about looks, right? It's not I'm saying they like, have to look like a character or whatever, as we discussed earlier. I think some examples of good casting, like Marvel Studios stands out as, you know, even though we may not be including adaptations, they're a good example of how of understanding characters, mm -hmm. because that's all they're taking you know, as we discussed, uh, and finding people that really en encapsulate them. So like, obviously Robert Downey Jr. is Tony Stark essentially in real life. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I think Chris Evans plays the, the most convincing Captain America we'll ever, we'll ever see. Uh, Paul Bettany's vision, I think really nails it just like all, I mean, you can go to the list. I think there's been some missteps AKA Finn Jones is Danny Rand. Yeah. Pretty much bet. But once again, like, I'm not sure if that's just like a, writing and acting or it's just like him himself i don't know that's a tough call but uh i think that marvel's strong casting has made that universe all right should we take a break for news and then come back and talk about uh some uh some adaptations that have maybe gone right or gone wrong yeah i guess we'll just make one more note that i forgot about is if if characters aren't particularly unique or strong just cast good actors <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, let's move on to some news. All right. So no sooner did we publish our 
speculation episode about who should direct Star Wars Episode Nine, that Lucasfilm announced what was probably the most obvious answer. J.J. Abrams will be writing and directing Episode Nine. Yeah, Wars. which we dismissed out of hand because we didn't want to talk about it, I think. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's the least worst option and it's a safe bet, but it's just tough to get excited about J.J. Abrams, you know? Yeah, I mean, we talked about this, but, you know, he said he's directing and writing it and that, you know, if he was just handed a script, I feel a little, so I think J.J. Abrams gets visual spectacle pretty well uh, and I think it can direct characters on screen well for the most part, but, you know, the plot, I just hope that, I'm hoping that episode eight doesn't allow him to do any rehashing, you know. Just make Return of the Jedi yeah, again. Yeah, pretty much. Because we also kind of got that in Force Awakens as well. Yeah. So, yeah, it's not terrible. I'm not super excited. But, I, I mean, I, I was really expecting Ryan Johnson to be, you know, the the one. But, oh, well. Uh, something interesting is coming out, and, and I'm not sure exactly who said it, but there's been a lot of discussion about how top movie movie executives are sort of blaming Rotten Tomatoes for all the big summer movie flops, which I was reading about, and there were a lot of them. I did not realize how many movies like barely even made back their budget or didn't make back their budget. Movies like Alien Covenant, The Mummy, like (laughs) some other big ones, the Emoji film, big surprise. Mm -hmm. Um, Actually, Mummy did okay because it did pretty well overseas, but uh, domestically, there were some big stinkers. Transformers did not make a billion dollars, so they were very disappointed by that. Um, it's a big stuff. So, yeah. So essentially the, the argument that the executives are making is that Rotten Tomatoes, and especially because Rotten Tomatoes is owned by Fandango and Fandango puts the Rotten Tomatoes score right there next to the buy tickets link. Um, they think that Rotten Tomatoes is somehow being unfair or somehow has too much influence over moviegoers who, um, are being unfairly dissuaded away from these movies. And this is just the most backwards ass nonsense because Rotten Tomatoes, like the score isn't even weighted the way that I think like Metacritic is like, it's just like, no, it's just, we just aggregate the positive and negative and it's just percent positive minus percent negative. And there you go. And like, my God, (laughs) like basically they're saying, they're saying that, we're mad because you're not letting us trick people into bu- seeing bad movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because now people aren't, you know, and it's like make make better movies. This is this is obvious, make better movies. It's just it's it's to me it's like you know as various municipalities are rolling out rules about like you know like you've got to put your cal- the calories of a dish on the menu. You know, and you, all, you know, Applebee's and these guys are fighting it tooth and nail and somehow making it about like somehow doing the mental gymnastics and being like, people need to be able to, you know, they peak consumers want a choice and we're like, consumers don't really care. And, but it's like, maybe just find a way to, you know, when someone sees that your, you know, your, you know, Caesar salad is 1300 calories and that bothers them maybe find a way to not make it 1300 calories cheesecake factory like hollywood you know how to make good movies yeah it's like there were good films this year that did very well i mean it had what the highest r-rated release of or you know we opening weekend of all time or horror movie opening i don't know what it was one of those you know wonder woman did great spider-man did great guardians did great like the movies that were good from studios that are generally good 
did well. <laughs> and it's because somebody, somebody somewhere, um, with a job much like mine, but for movies instead of groceries, looked at two, 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 you know, they looked and they saw a correlation between box office performance and, um, and Rotten Tomatoes score. And they said, look, as the score goes down, the box office performance goes down. And then some jackass was like, oh, well, that mean that clearly means that the, that the score is influencing the, uh, the box office. So we have to change the score. It's like, no, bad people don't go to see bad movies. That's the problem. Yeah. And it, it's not that, it's not that they see the review and they're like, well, I won't see that. It's that they just know it looks bad. Ugh. Yeah. I mean, I think that Rotten Tomatoes help, has helped illuminate and help guide people so that, you know, that family of eight who's going to movies for the one time in the summer because it's so goddamn expensive that, they're like, well, what should we go to? They're typically where before you might just say like, oh, we like Transformers. Let's just go see that. We're not like, well, there's also Wonder Woman. That's out. Well, how should we decide? They both look, they're with action-y. They both look cool. Well, there's this number next to it. Yeah, I might, that's, not, that, that's fine. I mean, uh, so I am actually surprised that Fandango does that. But um, I'm mean, just like, it just seems like I know they're trying to also, you know, since they own Rotten Tomatoes, drive traffic to that website as well. But I'm just surprised that you think that, I don't know, they want to have, I don't know. I, I'm just surprised they do that. But I just, it's just interesting. It comes at a time where, you know, there, there, there's a lot of complaints about general movie uh, attendance is down and yeah. continuing to decline. And there's all these, you know, I'm watching all these trailers for Thor and Spider-Man and it has like the actors beforehand being like, go ahead, buy your ticket, like go to the movies. Yeah. And I find it interesting. This is all happening at the same time that, this whole movie pass thing, which we've talked about before, mm -hmm. is really starting to kick up. And I have to say, I pulled the trigger. I did it for Shay and I. Two movie passes. Because yeah. we were talking about it and I was like, you know, we're 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 pretty frugal people. We try and, you know, make good investments. And we don't go to the movies very often. I'll go see the couple movies a year, the Marvel and the Star Wars, and maybe one or two others that I think really look good. And that's pretty much it, because it's goddamn expensive. Um and you know, there's things, you know, we don't go very often. So she's like, well, why would we spend $20 a month on something that we don't really go for? I'm like, but if we could go to any movie we wanted to go to, we would go to the movies. And then it becomes a cost saving thing because now we have an activity to do that is costing us a maximum of $20 a month that could really provide us entertainment every single day for a month if we really wanted yeah. to. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think it's it's really easy to look at the upcoming calendar and say, so I'm going to pay $120 for the next 12 months, how many movies looking at the, looking at what's coming out, how many of those movies do I want to see? And, you know, divide number of, you know, divide 120 by number of movies you want to see. And if that, if that number is lower than the typical ticket price, you've got a good deal. Yeah. I mean, what pushed me over were two things pushed me over. Um, first thing was that, uh, I looked around and saw that every, you know, every, um, movie theater in my area was taking it. Um, I know that AMC is really upset about it and they're trying to fight it and they're starting to sue, but they haven't really found a way to not allow it. Uh, so I'm thinking that this is going to be one of those things that might be too good to be true, but I'm going to take advantage of it while I can. Uh, so that was the first reason. The second reason was I watched the Disaster Artist trailer and I was like, I have to see this fucking movie. Yeah. And I have a rule. That looks good. I have a rule where I don't go see comedies in theaters because it doesn't help. Doesn't There's no experience you're getting in the theater. Exactly. But now I will. <laughs> yeah. No, that's always been my my feeling too. Like, you know, I really enjoy going to the movies, but being a new dad um, and also having, you know, fairly different tastes in movies than my wife. Like, it's like, 
it feels weird to just go to a movie alone. Um, so it, it's kind of like, you know, something I have to like, I have to really make a good case to myself of like, why am I going to see this movie? And it's always like, is it something that I really want to see with a big screen and with a theater quality sound system? Or, um, or is it something where um, I'm so bought into this story that I really don't want it spoiled for me in the time between the theatrical release and then when it comes to streaming? Like, I, I want to be on the ground floor of this because I don't want the story ruined for me. And that's pretty much it. But yeah, I'm, if the barrier of entry was lower, if it was more like, look, I, I already paid for a movie this month. I'm going to go take a chance on, uh, like you say, like the disaster artist. Like, yeah, more, more power to it. I think the thing that's going to, I don't think AMC or anybody else is ever going to succeed in blocking this thing from working because it's a debit card, right? There's nothing they can do on the technical side um, other than like, tell people like if you see that red debit card don't take it but that's also kind of fucked up and weird and i don't know that they can get away with that legally um yeah i think there could uh, another threatening legal action so that could but that's going to take years to run down so well and i don't know that they i don't know that they have a case yeah but so movie passes whole deal is that like this business model is unsustainably unsustainable mm -hmm. obviously because movie pass is essentially you're sending them $10 a month and they're loading on the exact ticket price onto your debit card. Like they are paying full price for your ticket. The plan is that if they can get enough people to sign up for this service now, then if they say, I've got 5 million subscribers or whatever, they can then go to the movie theater chains and say, we want to buy tickets at a discounted rate. Look at how many people I'm bringing into your theaters to buy popcorn. And, you know, it's a volume operation now. So give us a break on the tickets. So AMC could always refuse and just be like, yeah, no, we're not, we're not going to do that. We're not going to, we're not going to connect with you and work out a deal where when you buy the ticket from us or what, what have you, it's, you know, it's a discounted rate. Um, and AMC being one of the biggest theater chains, like that could shut this down. Like, and that's really all AMC needs to do is wait around for MoviePass to come knocking and say, um, uh, and say, hey, we want a discount. And they say, go fuck yourself. But also, why does AMC care? They get the money either way. Yeah, I, I don't understand either. Um, you know, I, I don't know what they're... So you said, they're they're getting paid, so who cares? Yeah, it's bringing more people. Like, you're, AMC is is selling a ticket at full price. Who do they... What what are they worried about here? I don't know. And and I will say one other benefit to this of, you know, be, especially being in a, you know, settled, uh, committed relationship is that... Um, or hell, if you dating you know you get a free you just use the debit card for the other person whatever you're doing but um that's what you, that's a new tinder profile like have double movie passes like can <laughs> um no but like you know but now you know like, like you kind of said like i have pretty different tastes from my fiance as well so she'll say i really want to go see x and i'm like mm, like i i'm not against the movie i like most movies you know i'll, I'll sit down and watch most movies i'll give things a shot uh but i'm not gonna go spend another $12, $12 to do it. Yeah. Just like she would might go like, well, I might go see Spider-Man, but I'm not, I don't want you to spend $13 on me to go see it with you. So cause I don't really care now. It's like, yeah, I'll come along. Why not? Got it. So uh, that's really cool. Uh, I'll keep you posted on, on what happens. I know that our yeah. loyal listener, Michael has seen 10 movies this month. So, um, <laughs> he is getting his money's worth. <laughs> yeah. So all those sweet September releases. Yeah. Two other little bits of news here. Um, this one is near and dear to your heart. So Wizards of the Coast has announced a new Magic the Gathering online game called Arenas. Yes. Yes. What's your thoughts uh, on this? Well, it looks like they are borrowing a lot from Hearthstone and Eternal in terms of the UI. 
um, and cleaning up, you know, you know, you don't need to see the full text of the card on the, you know, on the, on the board every second. Um, so that's good. I feel like, you know, if they can keep the play as fast place, fast paced as Hearthstone or Eternal, that's great. But like we talked about weeks ago, I bailed on their last iOS app because essentially I had been spending money on cards under the promise that this is our final app. You know, your card collection is safe. And then them being like, nah, psych, we're going to go work on something else. At this point, um, I just simply, as much as I love magic and I prefer the flavor of the game to um, Eternal, um, I, I, I'm sorry, the, I'm not giving them any more money. They've, they've, uh, they've shafted me too many times on it. And, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be a picky nerd about this, but you know, it's, it's about, you know, you keep your promise to your customers. And if you tell me that this is going to be the way it's going to be, then, you know, uh, stand up for that. Now could be that when this thing comes out, I mean, all they did was really show a demo of it. I don't think there's a release date, especially not for iOS, which is where I'd be playing it. Um, and you know, it's possible that they might find a way to make old players happy and, you know, um, maybe I can port my card collection over, port my decks over that I spent hours and hours and hours and hours building and refining. But even then, I don't know, I'm feeling pretty good with Eternal. It's, uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I'd be curious to check it out because I do, I think I agree with you like the, you know, the card art and the flavor and, I, and magic is, is cooler and some of the mechanics, there's more, you know, I think Eternal is a good job of making a good digital card game, but there's some things in you know, some things it can't do um, just to keep things interesting. I'm, I'm curious to see how magic's how magic having a pared down digital card game will work. Cause there's some things in magic that are very not pared down. Um, well, mechanically I think speaking. that, I think that mechanically it is magic. It's just what they've done is they have, um, I think based on what I'm hearing is they might be paring down the card set a little bit, which is what they did with the previous iOS games. Um, just to kind of keep some more things that might slow the game down, keep them out, um, and to keep things balanced. But also it's, it's, it's all the little quality of life things like just how long, like how many seconds is the animation for getting a card out of my hand and into play? Because I'm going to be doing that thing thousands of times. And if that thing takes three seconds, no, thank you. Um, so I think it's a lot of those just little streamlining things, but otherwise I think it's the same cards, same rules. Um, everything interesting yeah i'll check it out but you know maybe if the free to play is pretty gen pretty generous like eternal is like i spent five dollars on eternal so and i played hours uh and i have a continued increased interest and in card set and whatever so um maybe if they can be as generous that i highly doubt wizards of coast will be so generous no they will not they will not because uh, i know how ungenerous hearthstone is with its card giving i think you uh, the average amount of time to get a single pack is usually like like multiple hours um, where an internal, you can get a pack in about five minutes. Um, well, or when they roll out some, some <laughs> new reward structure and I just boot up the game and I've got 20 packs waiting for me like they did this week. Thanks, Direwolf Digital. You guys are tops. Yeah, that was good. So one more little thing. Um, this is homework in case you didn't watch it already, which you probably did. Did you watch this trailer for Big Mouth? No, I don't know what that All is. All right. So it's a Netflix animated comedy coming out soon. Uh, I don't really know who's behind the creation team, but it's got some interesting voice actors like Jordan Peele. Um, uh, what's the guy's name? Is a uh, uh, comedian, Mulaney. John, John Mulaney. Yep. Well, sign me. Um, up. but it's about teenage, like, like teenagers, like, like I guess tweens, like going through puberty, and it's a very adult show. It's about like monsters causing puberty. 
it's <laughs> like I don't know how to describe it. And I, you know, one article I was reading was saying how like what is this sh- who's this show for like what is it looks funny but like <laughs> yeah. we just don't know what it's about so it looks all right bonkers. all right yeah if it's if john mulaney is involved and people don't know who it's for then that is then it's for me <laughs> uh speaking of john mulaney and netflix go watch oh hello on broadway on netflix it's the best gotcha uh but i think that's it for news this week uh should we move on to some case studies let's do it where to begin Mm. All right, let's let's get Game of Thrones out of the way. Fuck it, we made it a week without talking about this stupid show. All right, so I think Game of the Thrones uh, in the in the later seasons, like I mentioned a little earlier in the show, gets it wrong because the the key of um, Game of Thrones is one of the ways it subverts fantasy tropes is it is that you know the action is driven by characters and their choices and their personalities and their wants and their motivations, and that's what really motivates the big things on the show. The entire thing is kicked off by one man's weird ambition to like get a chip off of his shoulder with Littlefinger, you know, arranging the murder of John Aaron that kicks everything into motion. Um, whereas typical fantasy stuff is more about like, there has been a prophecy of a chosen one who will find the jewels of Emrakul and it's driven by these outside events. And that's one of the ways it does it. But now the showrunners have, abandon that idea and it's no longer about you know characters and their wants and their motivations and now it's just about um some plot things that need to happen and characters will do whatever thing they need to do to get to that point in the plot even if it doesn't necessarily make sense for them or align with their motivations or their personality so game of thrones great adaptation up until about season six yeah to go through the rules i'd say that yeah rule one they met for a long time and if that's the biggest error they've lost it which is you know no understanding use they you know they knew that characters were importance and having characters making logical decisions in a fully actualized universe and they've lost that um i think rule two is also really messed up it says don't be beholden to your source material right like they didn't make they didn't have sound judgment when they were deciding what to keep and what to cut yeah uh and it made for some dangling plot threads that really dragged the story down at this point um, where, you know, some things they cut they shouldn't have and some things they didn't cut that they should have. Dorne being essentially one of them. Yeah. Uh, is a good example. And then I think Rule 3, they, they did good. Casting was pretty solid for that show. Yeah. I, I don't think we can argue. Um, All right. I guess I'll take one. Let's do... Yes. I think I'll just harp on this a little more since I've just been thinking about it nonstop. Handmaid's Tale. Uh, I said I didn't read the book, but I know a lot about it. Um Rule one, I think they really get the point of what this story is about. It's about the horror that is, you know, the sort of logical extension of some of the misogynist thought practices of the patriarchal society that we live in. That was that was good. I, I had trouble getting that out first. Um, <laughs> rule two, they, they extrapolated, they built, they crafted a whole plethora of characters and stories and a continuation of a story that was singular in nature, but still stays true to the story itself and the casting has been awesome i mean elizabeth moss yeah. is just she's just phenomenal i mean she, i don't yeah. know what else to say she's just amazing no. and, and the side character's get... been good too so uh um, you watch a little uh, bit of it do you agree i mean yeah no i have i i have nothing bad to say about that show i mean it's just that that show does what it's supposed to do which is make me as a man feel really really bad <laughs> 
about the world that I have I have benefited from. Uh, I would like to think I have not had a direct hand in perpetuating patriarchy, but uh, I certainly have benefited from it, and that show makes me feel real, real bad, which is what it should do. Um, also, as a father, okay. it makes me feel real, real bad to see people's kids being taken away from each other and, you know, yeah, whatever. But, yeah. Uh, right. We got to talk about Watchmen. We got to. It's a good, it's a good so, case study. So rule one, which is our, you know, does it, does it understand the source material? I think no. Um, I think it is Watchmen. The book is a deconstruction of heroism and superheroism, especially. And Watchmen, the movie is more like a superhero movie that happens to have some slightly flawed superheroes. Um, I don't think Zack Snyder Got it. I don't think the deconstruction aspect was there enough. I feel like he followed the plot beats. He followed the story. But, um, you know, when Oz- Ozymandias shows up, and you have no doubt that he's the villain, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people watch that movie and come out of it thinking Rorschach is, is the hero, which is not how that's supposed to go. Yeah, it's very interesting because this is a movie that was, you know, in a lot of ways, almost shot for shot. Mm-hmm. But it just shows how how you adapt it mechanically, right? You know, how you frame scenes and how you, you know, have actors act in scenes and things like that. You know, I think I think generally the casting for this movie is reasonable. I think the yeah. character you play, Osmondeus, was a little bit too, like, I'm the villain, uh, you yes. know, but yes. um, they could have had someone a little more, like, imagine if they put, like, cast, like, Nathan Fillion as Osmondeus. Like, then you'd be confused, right? Like, <laughs> Right, yeah. It needed, it, that needed to be, that needed to be a, um, you know, that needed to be a surprise and it it was not yeah so um do you think it's such a good case study because of that just like it, it is a shot for shot as a lot of zack snyder's you know 300 is similar although i've never read the actual comic of 300 and i don't think the criticism of that is quite as harsh as watchmen um because i don't think the story was quite as developed because it was made by frank miller but <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i mean 300 is i mean as an adaptation it is it is like a hundred percent like it, it nails all of the rules, but it's not necessarily great source material. Right. Um, it's just, you know, um, especially it just has not aged terribly well, especially knowing what we know now about who Frank Miller is now. It's a little, it's a little gross. Yeah, it's in a different light than I think it was back yeah. then. Um, all right. Let's talk about another like a, a more more popular one anymore. Come on. <laughs> it's not like Harry Potter. Uh, have you read the books? Nope. Okay. So, I have not. So I've read the books uh, a while ago, but and I've watched all the movies very recently. Actually, Shay and I decided to sit down and watch them all. Um, this is a pretty much this is a pretty mixed bag for me. I think the casting for this is pretty solid all around. Uh, I think that you know, obviously, there are some child acting issues in the first couple of years, but I think that all of these the these are the main core have developed into really good actors and actresses. And um, is that I've always I'm confusing this by the way. Side note: Is the trend now to just call everyone actors? I don't know if trend is the is the right word, um, but I think that is, I think that is the uh, the accepted. Okay, yeah, yes. trend think, came I off think, from, but you know what I'm saying. Like, what's yeah, the accepted yeah. nomenclature? I think I think just I think actress, <laughs> comedian, um, it, unnecessarily gendered. I, I I think that's a good a good distinction. Okay, just a side note. Uh, back to Harry Potter. Um, I think that in a lot of ways, this is another example of having difficult source material to work with because there's a lot of the things that J.K. Rowling does that I really don't like. And sometimes the movies do much better of, 
you know, do much better at, like spectacle and action scenes and things like that, things that movies should be good at. Uh, I always think of the good example of like in the fourth movie with the dragon, you know, it's like a paragraph in the book. And in the movie, it's like, you know, a 20 minute action scene, which kind of felt like the whole book was leading up to it. So it should be that, but it wasn't because J.K. Rowling can't really write action. Um, so, you know, I do think that the movie stumble as they tried to make sense of the source material and weren't willing to use that rule number two to cut and add when they should have. I think that's why a lot of people really like the, you know, the kind of last couple movies, but I really thought that they were slow and kind of confusing and dull and i think that sub rule number two where your your readers shouldn't have to or your viewers shouldn't have to be familiar with the story mm-hmm. i thought that it failed that rule a little bit because i felt confused and i've read the books you know granted eight years ago or whatever but so mixed bag on the harry potter for me all right we should we should have gotten like a hat and just like put a whole bunch in and just like drew them out that would have been fun <laughs> so i want to talk about um what I think is is maybe the best thing going right now in terms of adaptations, and that is Preacher. I've been talking a lot about Preacher um, this season um, because I really think it it nails all of our rules in such a beautiful way. Um, so does it understand the source material? It absolutely does. Whereas, so the story of Preacher is... Jesse Custer, who is the preacher with the voice of God and his uh, assassin for hire girlfriend, Tulip, and his vampire best friend, Cassidy, they go on essentially a road trip to find, literally find God who's gone missing from heaven, and they are pursued by some uh, enemies. Um, And the world they live in is a very, very weird and exaggerated and bizarre version of America. And a bizarre version of, you know, kind of Christian cosmology. Um, that's kind of the plot, but the feel of it and the kind of the the underlying emotional arc is really about kind of making sense of an insane world and trying to find some moral code and moral compass in a really, really weird and confusing world. And that's told in the comic by all kinds of outlandish characters and situations. But, and then you have Jesse who is trying to live a kind of, kind of backwards Texas macho, uh, vaguely Christian, you know, Hank Hill, essentially, um, moral code in this world. And, you know, um, and that's kind of the the key. And, you know, the show does such an excellent job of giving you that really weird funhouse mirror America um, and really showing you um, Jesse's struggle with, you know, his place in that. Um, and because it gets that so right, um, it uh, it gets away with some really big changes to the source material. Um, where, you know, the characters are essentially the same, the, and the overall outline of the plot is essentially the same, but the entire first season of the show basically takes place in a time period. That's like the first three pages of issue one. Um, but it works because, and I think that the, you know, to Seth Rogen of all people's credit, like he understands that like, you know, 
this is about this is about you know a your your central character in a crazy topsy turvy world. So as long as I've got Jesse Custer in a crazy topsy turvy world, I've got a show. And you know, setting that part of the topsy turvy world in Anvil, Texas, works just fine. Um, and I think you know, rule three, the casting rule, um, Dominic Monaghan. Um, I had huge doubts about him as Dominic Jesse Cooper. Custer. Who's Dominic Monaghan? Somebody else, <laughs> Dominic Cooper. Correct. Thank you. Um, he is doing a uh, just a great job. I, I really had doubts, you know, because I looked at him and was like, well, he's kind of small and kind of pretty and pretty sure he's Irish. <laughs> and I was like, I just don't know. I mean, Jesse Custer is this like square jawed, not the most handsome guy in the world, um, you know straight shooting Texas Texan asshole. Like, I just don't know, but he, man, he's got it. And Ruth Nega as Tulip. Um, I think actually, I think she's brought more life to the character than is on the page. Um, uh, she, she was really good in agents of shield too. Oh, was she in agents of shield? Uh, she played, uh, what was her name? It was another flower related thing actually, I think for a while, but she was like kind of like huh. a reoccurring sort of like side villain for a while. Huh. Um, and she becomes an inhuman later. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Um, and uh, Joseph Gilgoon, who plays um, Cassidy, also great. And I was a little worried about him, too, because, you know, Cassidy in the comics is almost just like, hey, what if Keith Richards was a vampire? <laughs> like, he's drawn that way. He talks that way. And it kind of works in the comic. And I think that was because the comic came out pre-Jack Sparrow. And we kind of got the, hey, what if Keith Richards was a thing? Um, but... It, He's interpreted the character in a way that's just perfect, man. And every single casting co- choice, especially uh, Pip Torrens as um, uh, as Hair Star, who will show up in the second season, he is just man. Like, just uh, I didn't know it could be this good. I didn't know people could get Preacher this much. Uh, it's so good. Awesome. Um, I'm about halfway through the first season, so I'm catching up. Um, Let's look at another AMC independent comic, uh, The Walking Dead. So this is one that's in its seventh season, eighth. I don't even know how far we are. Um, Whatever's happening coming up very shortly uh, in October, I guess. Uh, How many hands does Rick have? Two. Not into it. Um, They've talked about it a lot, but and they've hinted at it so many times, but they just said like, it's just a cost thing. They're like, it's just so expensive. Your main character not oh, have a hand. Bullshit. But I know, I know. But um, they did have some good. Talk. You're talking about how uh, not to get on a t- uh, tangent here, but how like there's so much you can do in a comic when a character has one hand that you can't do on screen because stuff doesn't make sense. Like you know, they'll like climb a gate or whatever, and it's just like, yeah, it doesn't like, and they can just have them have it happen off panel, and you don't think about it. And it's because it's in a comic. Uh-huh. But like in a show, it's just like, yeah, he can't really, you know, he can't really do anything. Like can't do two things at once in any way. He can't like drive a car and hold a gun. Like there's like lots of things that you just like can't do. So, which I like, but the show, you know, the comic, they are right. There's a lot of things. It's like, if you look back, it's like, oh, how do you ever even do that? Like he's got one hand. Sure. Sure. But okay. So I I don't mean to step on your, your pick, but again, if, if rule one is understand the source material. The core of the source material of The Walking Dead is fucking no one is safe. Yeah, I I think that that's something that I I say I give the show a fifty percent. They've they've I mean I've always thought that Rick and Carl are eternally safe is sort of the rule of Walking Dead for me was that both these these are the main characters of the show 
or the comic, the story, it's their story. That's who we're going to see throughout this whole thing. They've gotten, I mean, they've lost a lot of things. You know, Rick lost an arm, Carl lost an eye, you know, also his entire childhood and innocence, but, um, and some memory there too. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, so I, I agree. I think that they get this, they kind of oscillate. It's almost Game of Thrones where sometimes they've, some seasons have been better at this than others. And I think casting wise, it's been pretty decent. I think overall, um, there's some people who have a weird Southern accent. Although the main, the main actor, I forget his name, who plays Rick, you know, him being British, I would have never guessed in a million years because his, you know, Georgia accent is pretty believable for me. Not that I live in Georgia, but, um, you know, once again, child acting hit or miss. Although I think we're being, I think we're being shown by things like stranger things and it, that like, that's not an excuse anymore. Yeah. There's enough people being bred for child acting that there's not an excuse being bred for it. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's pretty, that's not like a good thing in our culture, but uh, it's a thing that's happening. And, um, I think that it, it, it gets, I think the hard part is that there is no ending and a show needs an ending. Yeah. And that's sort of the problem is that also the, the pacing, the pacing of The Walking Dead is kind of the point of The Walking Dead where it's kind of boring at points in the comics and they can kind of show long passes of time with nothing going on really and then it explodes and everything goes to shit for 10 minutes and the impact of that and the fallout of that is another 10 issues of no action. The show emulates that too much so the pacing it feels very off because it can't have, you know, and then other times it feels like it has to have a zombie encounter every episode and some people only watch it because they want to see a zombie action show and that's not the point of The Walking Dead and I think it's had trouble knowing what it is because so i think it's it's oscillated i think if it just would have committed to one of those two things it would have been okay i don't think it would have mm -hmm. would have fit our good adaptation rules um so mixed bag on that one i think so you want to do one more or you want to call it you know what i think I, I i think that um given everything i had to say about preacher i don't want to i don't want to follow that up with other like complaints about other ones that have done wrong i want to end with something that like hey this is doing a great job and you know is also being a great television show in the in the meantime so uh, i i want to leave it at preacher all right sounds good um so do some recommendations yeah so i guess my recommendation is preacher <laughs> um but no i i think just to recap some things i've mentioned already on the show that are 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 really excellent um of course preacher um destiny 2 uh, if you like um, just a really good video game and I threw it out there briefly, but, and again, has nothing, nothing to do with our show, just like my last recommendation of weird comedy on Netflix, but Oh Hello on Broadway. Um, you can find it on Netflix. I think it's in their stand-up comedy section, but uh, Oh Hello on Broadway. It's John Mulaney and Nick Kroll doing a literal Broadway show, and it is the funniest thing. So that sounds those are my three preacher. Oh, hello on Broadway and destiny Two. my Rex for tonight. Um, you know, to fit in the theme of our episode and I recommended it before, but I'm recommending against I'm finished now. I can wholeheartedly recommend it. Watch handmaid's tale. It's uncomfortable. It's going to make you hurt on the inside, no matter who you are. If it doesn't, you've got a serious issue and you probably should go walk off a cliff. <laughs> if it doesn't hurt, if it doesn't hurt you, Mr. President, something's <laughs> wrong. Yeah, pretty much. It's, oh, God. Um, it's going to hurt a lot of ways, but it's just so good. And I'm really excited to see what they do with season two. Uh, I'll have two completely off topic recommendations. There's a new Perturbator album um, called The New Model that just came out. You can listen to it on YouTube for free, uh, selling it on Bandcamp. Um, for those unfamiliar, we talked about before, uh, Perturbator is a French 
synthwave artist kind of does that like John Carpenter style music. This album's got a little bit more like 90s industrial like kind of like if if Perturbator was like Terminator 1, this is more like Terminator 2. Whoa. Um <laughs> instead of being talked stalked by the, you know, the, the T100 being stalked by the T1000. That's kind of how it feels to me. Um, <laughs> All right. But I, I really like it. It's really good. Um, the third thing I would recommend is I have started listening to, and I'm pretty, you know, a couple of good episodes into Adventure Zone, which is mm-hmm. the McElroy's, uh, for my brother, my brother, meet their D and D podcast with their father. Um, meeting their father explains a lot about them and their personalities, because <laughs> uh, he's awesome. But yeah, Clint McElroy is a gem. Uh, for those, you know, this is just a straight up D and D podcast. They're playing Fifth Edition. Um, it's, I believe. Griffin is DMing. Um, Griffin's a DM. Uh, he it's his first time DMing. Um, it's a couple. It's their dad and one of those like first time playing, um, and it's really funny. I think it's a good introduction D and D podcast. I haven't listened to any others, but to me, like they kind of start off. They're all kind of new, and you can kind of see the realization dawn in their eyes of like why it's fun and yeah, you know, like I guess you recommended this on our D and D episode, didn't you? But I'll recommend it again. Screw it. Um, it's funny uh they really roll with it it shows you one version of what D can be they kind of roll they kind of a pretty good like they they pretty they play all mechanically but they kind of roll with it and make a little make a little more fun and jokey which is one way you can play where sometimes it can be you know deadpan serious uh or even more jokey than they have it so i think it's a good middle of the road like show you why what D is and why it's fun yeah and spending spending a couple hours with the mcelroy family is uh always a pleasant experience yeah they are funny dudes and you can see why they're funny because their dad is also really funny and they, well, they must all just be media obsessed he is a funny he's funny in a very very particular very very father of three boys kind of way yeah like he is peak dad like <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> it's amazing. like what everything greg aspires to be no i'm just yeah, kidding <laughs> uh, someday man someday all right well i think that does it for us this week we will be back next week, and I keep threatening to get started on my uh, rebuild of the Star Wars prequels, and I think we're, I think that time is drawing near. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> and I'll start on my build of the Star Wars Expanding Universe. We'll just go down a whole Star Wars train. We've been down the Game of Thrones train for a while. I was trying to switch gears for a while. So I'm just going to retitle the podcast Hacks Rewrite Classics. <laughs> Hot Takes by Greg and Andrew. <laughs> All, right, All right, buddy. See you next week. Thank <laughs> you.